everybody. Welcome to Second Rail. Talk about transforming education by and for people playing unique roles in the organization, service delivery, and inspiration of learning. Uh, today, I'm having a friend on, uh, Shelly Cummings. She is an old friend who, who who has gone through a series of career uh, career moves over the last, God, 30 years, 20 years, and <laughs> uh, and forever. And uh, she, I, she, she started off in genetics counseling, and now she is what I would describe as a businesswoman. Um, so, Shelley, welcome to Second Rail. Thank you for having me, John. <laughs> I, I so, need to correct you. I'm not an old friend. I am a friend you've known for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And fr- <laughs> you know, in French, they don't have this problem. The direct translation of old friend is you don't say an ancien, which would be old. You say a friend of long term. There you go. I like that. So you're a friend of long term. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so how's it going? How are you holding up in the uh, in in the in, at home, being locked at home in in Indianapolis? I'm good. Um, my work is a mixture of home anyway, and then um, traveling a fair bit. So the travel definitely has been uh, curtailed. It's non-existent actually, but mm-hmm. um, the rest of my time typically is in front of a computer or on conference calls or on zoom calls and that has just ramped up exponentially well uh, let's so. talk about a bunch of these things but let me start with let, 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 why don't you give me a give me a how do you describe your career give me a kind of a potted description of your career yeah so i i uh, um went to indiana university and got a biology degree and wasn't sure if i wanted to get an md or a phd so i worked for a while at the university of chicago in doing research, which is where um, I became friends with you through our Chicago connection. And then while I was there, um, I was told about this field of genetic counseling. So I went to Northwestern and got a master's in genetic counseling. And straight from there, I worked in cancer in at the University of Chicago for 13 years um, and went from genetic counselor to seeing patients um, who are at increased risk for hereditary cancer syndromes. And then I became the assistant director of that program. And at a period of time, felt like I had done all that I could do in an academic environment. There were no opportunities for advancement or really expanding my wings beyond what I have already had already done there. And I randomly was approached by a recruiter, even though I wasn't actively looking, mm-hmm. um, to work at... Um, the lab that I work at now, Myriad Genetics, and I'd known them because we sent our genetic testing there. And Mm -hmm. um, I've been working there for 12 years, and I started in as what's called a regional medical specialist, where we work very closely with doctors to educate them on genetics and hereditary Mm -hmm. cancer syndromes, because most doctors have not had genetics training at all, Mm -hmm. um, which is scary, particularly now that a lot of genetics are playing into different um, everything. Just, yeah. I feel like every conversation we have, it's it's it, every conversation you have now. There's a genetics component. Today I was and reading an article treatment. about about yeah. coronavirus and one of the potential testing. Wh- one of the potential tests they're talking about is involves CRISPR, <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, what? So I mean, it's it is it is it's it's working its way into every conversation. Yes, and it and it can have immediate impact for the decision that a doctor might make towards treating a cancer with one chemotherapy or another, for example. Yeah. Um, and the chemotherapy could be more effective in one population of patients or another based on their genetic makeup. 
Um, and so I, that's where I spent uh, my time. And then I was promoted to a manager of that same team. And then the company had me dabble a little bit on the sales side. So I wasn't out selling anything, but I was the clinical arm of a selling or a sales team. Um, so I was held accountable in a very different way than I ever have been before in terms of I, my success is based on their success. So they mm. have to educate these doctors in a proper way that they are convinced that they should use our products versus another company's products mm. and how well they do impacts how well I do, which is was an uncomfortable Unusual. place to be a little bit because you don't have control. Yeah. Um, and you have then, to believe in the product though. You do, you do. And yes, that's a huge part about it. You can tell when people don't believe in what they have to spend a good portion of their day. Well, I want, I want to get it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want, so I want to get into, I want to get into the, 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 the kind of the, the nature of the work you're doing and, and kind of or, the nature of what you've learned about organizations and how decisions are made and how, how things get done in kind of organizationally and even in, in the field. But can you back up a little bit and go and get, give a little bit of an introduction? Like what is o- overview? Why should the average person who's never heard of, uh, of your work care? My work being my field of genetic counseling or? Correct. Okay. Both. Well, both. I, I kind of purposely left it open-ended so you could talk okay. about both. So yeah, your field of genetic counseling and the testing that you guys are doing. Okay. So the field of genetic counseling has been around for 25, 30 years. I forget what our anniversary is, but focused primarily in prenatal and genetics. And as we've learned more about genetics that it, that covers all different diseases and disease categories, Um, There has not been a group of experts that have been able to spend enough time and explain it to patients in a way that they can make informed decisions. But genetic counselors actually fill that role. And they can have a, they're trained in um, the sciences, but also in the psychology of how to explain very complex medical information and synthesize that down into a meaningful way that patients can use to help make a decision for themselves, whether it's to take a genetic test or whether it's to have an amniocentesis or some kind of uh, carrier screening before they um, uh, decide to become pregnant. So the, the whole, it covers the whole life cycle really of individuals and genetic counselors can play a critical role in adding to that medical discussion that a doctor might not be as rounded in um, mm-hmm. and really help support that provider. So is the, is, the, um, is the reason that it's so complex and maybe so much more complex than a lot of what other medical professionals do, is that because of the risk involved or is that because of the sheer t- kind of technical nature of the, of the content? I don't know if it's as much of the risk involved as it is the technical content and the complexity of it. The other big um, aspect that makes it very different than some of the other areas of medicine is that it's not black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody can, for example, take a genetic test and get an inconclusive result. And in the world of medicine- That's kind of what I meant by risk. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of what I was going for. Right, right, right. Okay. 
And in the How, world of medicine, you don't characterize medicine, that as risk. You yeah, I, that as I guess I was inclusiveness. Yeah, I guess I was thinking risk of like, oh, am I going to do this test? What's going to happen? I mean, I guess that yeah. is a risk, but I, I the you know patients and doctors, quite honestly, are used to drawing blood, getting a result that fits into a range that they can interpret as normal or abnormal, and sometimes in genetics, it, it's not that black and white, and right. there's some ambiguity there. There's also our policy, um, policies, health insurance or different protections are behind the times in terms of genetics. So it, it, it hinders sometimes what patients can have access to, which is a huge problem. And it even hinders genetic counselors being able to practice in certain areas or bill for their services. Mm -hmm. Explain that. So, for example, Medicare, Medicaid, CMS is yeah. the agency that uh, controls Medicare, Medicaid. They do not recognize uh, genetic counselors as um, providers, health professionals. And so if we saw a 68-year-old Medicare patient who was appropriate for genetic testing, we could, she could get the test done for example, or he could get the test done if they met Medicare's criteria. But mm -hmm. my hour and a half that I spent with that patient, mm -hmm. I couldn't bill for that time. Whereas a doctor mm -hmm. could. Mm -hmm. um, the doctor sitting right next to me might have zero ability to have that conversation right. Um, right. where I can, but they could bill for it. Right. So right now there's a big bill that's going through to try to change that. And it's been going on for a, a number of years, but um, we're getting closer than we've ever been to, to making that happen. Yeah. So talk, okay. So talk a little bit about the company and talk about, about the work, the company that it does then why that's um, of, I don't know, uniquely of value to people as opposed to, I suppose, the other ways that they can get, they, that, they, that they could get this information or other ways that maybe it could be, um, I don't know, they could, they could learn about what's happening. Yeah. So the, um, the company that I work for was critical, critically involved in identifying um, the genes that were responsible for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, BRCA1 and BRCA2. And there was a lot of controversy around uh, the patent of the genes that they had on that for a period of time, and that ended in 2013. But it really didn't change any of our practice patterns or, quite honestly, our market share once more labs started to become available to test for those genes. What sets, um, I think, and I am biased, uh, myriad yeah. apart no, go for it. Um, is the they truly, truly have the patient interests at heart. So even if a patient could not pay for a test or if there was some financial si hardship or situation, they're not going to prevent that test from happening because of that circumstance. They'll make sure that it happens. Whereas, you know, some people might, some organizations might send them to collections or they might upbill the insurance company, stack billing codes, um, because they think they can get uh, money out of this. And so there's, there's a culture, there's a whole culture that's different um, from what I've talked to even some of my colleagues that work at some of the competitors labs that is different at Myriad than in other places. I think the mm -hmm. other aspect that makes um, 
it unique, and this is even unique um, from coming from the academic setting, is they listen to people all the way down the totem pole to the top of the totem pole. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a, certainly there is a hierarchy, but it you don't walk in feeling that, oh, I can't express my opinion or my ideas um, freely mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, so far down the rung. Yeah. Um, it's very open um, to ideas and sharing and innovation from all all angles. Yeah. So, so, so you you you're alluding to you alluded to something you mentioned earlier, which is how you made the move from kind of academics and academic medicine maybe to 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 private industry. Talk a little bit about that. About how do how not only this company, but how generally have you in your career seen the you know the move create more opportunities for you? And for yeah. and for anybody who would be who anybody who might want to make a move like that, yeah, I it was a it was a challenging transition in the beginning because I had built up long term relationships with the patients that I saw. Um, they weren't just they didn't my pro, our program wasn't set up that patients would just come in and go home and I'd never see them again. Mm-hmm. They would mm-hmm. come in every six months, sometimes every three months if they were on a mm-hmm. study. So I knew patients, I knew their kids. I knew their extended family. I have pictures of some of them. I'm still friends with some of them on sure. social media. So the long-term uh-huh. relationship. So I lost that immediately when I went right. into industry because we right. didn't interact with the patients. But it, what I was able to quickly realize is that the impact that I was having moving to this industry side was far greater than those few patients that were able to trickle into a major academic center in a urban setting. So I was, is that because I was, of the quantity of the quantity of people to, or and cases you were able to work with or, or, or just the quantity of cases you could affect, or was it more about the nature of the way the organization and the, and the system worked? It was a little bit of both. I, okay. I now was reaching doctors, talking to doctors who see mm-hmm. 30 patients a day, educating mm-hmm. them so they can reach more patients. So I was actually spending a great deal of my time ramping up the medical community so they can do their own, have these, their conversations. They can still refer to a genetic counselor or they can test on their own if they're properly, uh, properly educated. Um, but they, uh, I was reaching, I felt more patient lives by educating where these patients actually, the majority of the patients in this country get their care from a community mm-hmm. hospital, not an academic medical center. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, so, 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 oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so that I found extremely rewarding. So it was a different care education delivery model than right. I had been, that I kind of grew up in professionally. Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about what's top of mind for everybody, because this is what I'm, uh, I'm uh, in, in every, every job, every career, every, every, everybody has been affected by, uh, by the coronavirus and the, the crisis. So, um, Talk to me a little bit about how it's affected you. Yeah, both professionally and personally. Feel free to you can feel free to slip into it if uh, slip into your you know your regular life because I think they often they are overlapping now heavily. <laughs> they are overlapping, and and I think as you know as I said a little bit ago, my time sitting at home in front of my computer has uh, extended significantly. So yeah. it, it it has tested my. Um, self-control of being able to step away and, Uh you know, maybe take that half hour break or that walk outside 
or yes. do something as fun as emptying the dishwasher instead of, yeah. you know, <laughs> typing out that last email. Yeah. Um, so I've had to really get more um, restrictive with my time. Even though I'm used to working at home, um, I have to realize that, okay, I'm on the East, I'm on Eastern Standard Time. My company's on Mountain. I work with people mm-hmm. also who are on Pacific, but mm-hmm. I can't spend my life working until nine o'clock. So I have to set up those barriers. So that was, um, that kind of crosses over from the work and the personal. The other big thing that I miss from the personal side is when I'm home, I will go to the gym um, and take classes or meet with my personal trainer. And I've been doing that in my living room instead. Um, So it's, it's good and it's bad because I don't have all the equipment. But the good thing is there's a class I've been too intimidated to take when I've been at the gym that I have taken here in my living room. Um, so that's a good uh-huh. thing. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, so you've been you've been doing distributed work for a long time then. So this is in some ways no different in the, except for the, except for the the decreased travel, decreased going the going out of the house and probably the structure of maybe the quantity of what you're doing at home, but otherwise it sounds like you've been doing this for a while. How long have have you been kind of a in working in a more distributed fashion? Um, so my last before this director position that I have now, I was a medical science liaison where I traveled a fair bit um, to, I've always had a travel job actually since I've right. been with Myriad. So it's just ramped up the higher I moved up in the company. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say that um, another major impact from COVID-19 is that I had several professional meetings lined up to go to that have been canceled. One was in Toronto. Mm. One was in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Two were in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. And now those are all going to be virtual. But unfortunately, uh, a sad side effect of this is we had a lot of critical data that we were going to present at these conferences. And it's a, it's a fantastic way to get in front of these key opinion leaders, as we call them. Right. These are folks right. that help set guidelines and right. set the trajectory, trajectory for their own profession. And so now we have to think of creative ways to get in front of these docs to spread this information at the same time that they're dealing with these immunocompromised patients and COVID. So right. we the have side to be really of a, sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. The side effect of uh, doing Zoom, Zoom conferences all the time instead of face-to-face is you miss those little uh, intermissions in the hallway and in the bathroom and maybe at the bar or anywhere else, the restaurant or even the hallway of the lobby where you can, or a hotel where you can bump into someone and have a conversation. And I assume those things uh, are, that you know, I, I, in my experience, those things are totally real. I mean, I worked for a lawyer once for who would go to go to conferences and he would do nothing but the little kibitzing in the halls and conversations with the, you know, on the side, far more than the big presentations, which quite frankly are usually available online or ex- information's available on another way. Is, the, is that kind of along the lines of what you're saying is happening? It's completely accurate. I mean, the, that key person that you want to get in front of typically is extremely busy at these conferences and moving and shaking around. But you know, when the day is over, they have a cocktail or two at the bar. And that's sometimes your opportunity to have a conversation. And really, they get to know you in a different way, because somewhat their guard is down, they're relaxed. So you also have to not go in guns, guns, you know, blazing, but you um, can get to know them in a different way. And all of that is lost with this. 
Yeah, and you know, a lot of people kind of compl- I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I mean, obviously the word lobbyist, which is, you know, kind of a p- pejorative, is is often this idea of, you know, being in the lobby and catching people and having conversations. But, you know, when I, in my experience, and I don't know if this is for you, but for me, in my experience, those kinds of conversations in the evening at the bar or at a dinner, those were incredibly valuable work times. I mean, Incredibly. they were informal, but they were, but, but a hu- the human brain can only kind of handle so much kind of hard input at any given time and having a blend of kind of what humans can do of, of, of how hard they can just sit and work versus they can, you know, a little interaction, maybe a little levity, you know, <laughs> mixed mm-hmm. in with a conversation, mixed in with a cocktail can actually, actually accomplish bigger, greater outcomes than just straight up like doing the hard meeting. Absolutely. And you, you really get to know that person on a personal level. I mean, they're not divulging all their personal secrets, but they tend to just, you know, you find some common denominator in this more casual conversation than if you had a bunch of PowerPoint slides in front of a big room, you lose that connection. And I think that's unfortunately um, where we've lost a lot of our connections with folks, but that's in some respects, a good side of this um, activity that we're going through now is people are extending themselves in different ways and to people some that haven't spoken to in a long time you mean virtually they're, they're virtually extending themselves virtually yeah yeah that makes i've sense. heard from that i've heard from sense. people on a regular basis now that i have yep. not heard from in six seven months right um or longer makes sense yeah it just makes people think about um reaching out so that that co- missing all of those conferences has been um a big uh, change uh, for the work. work well, life. talk about that. Talk about the change of work for because I think you know I, I know it's it's almost. I mean, I think everyone is thinking a lot about on the the other side of this when we get through it, which we will, um, and what life is going to be like and how um, how you know how things will be different permanently. And I guess uh, you know I'd love to hear what you what you think. Like, what's what what do you think is going to stick? Um, that maybe was forced upon us now, what do you think is going to go away? And what do you think may just change because it's, it, you know, it's, an, there's an, op- there's an opportunity here and it, it's for the better for everyone. Yeah. From the work, um, perspective, um, my lab was not set up, uh, completely to do telegenetics or telehealth. Um, mm-hmm. it still required, you know, the doctor or somebody to draw their blood or take the saliva and send the kit. And this uh, made us ramp that plan up significantly. So as of last week, we now readily have that available. We'll ship kits to patients' homes. They have, there's an online portal. So that will stick. That is something we've wanted to do. But honestly, for whatever reason, other priorities uh, were taking precedence over that, and well, one of my one of my questions about that was my assumption was at least, and this is where the the lawyer in me, and having worked with you know kind of uh, insurance companies for a long time, has made me think that at least part of that was driven by an insurance model that reimbursed face to face face to face interactions in some way, and that that kind of had down downstream effects, probably including your work, or is that probably is that off? I think there might be some element of that, but from my understanding, it was also compliance with how do we know that's the patient's spit in that Got sample? It. How do Got we it. know, uh, you know, so there were a lot of things, and, but 
other labs have been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there are ways to get around it. And so I think that's a that's been a huge advancement in this area. And it'll make it easier for patients, easier for doctors. They'll be able to get the information that they need, impact their care quicker. The turnaround time is faster. Patients don't have to go see a stranger that they don't know and have this intimate conversation about their family history. Um, People may pick up the phone and dial and not just go through a million different button pushings and then get a hold of somebody in India, but actually get something where they're able to do something. They might be able to actually do something productive on the phone with the uh, with whatever it is they're whatever medical provider they're trying to get to. Exactly. Exactly. That makes sense. Makes sense. So what else? What else do you think is going to come out of this? What do you what what do you forecast? What do you see different? Um, You know, again, either in your career or just in life or in society, what do you see coming different uh, on the other end of this? I hope that in society in general, that people will think about um, their connectivity to other people. Um, they might be ramping it up right now. They might be on spending more time with family and friends. And I would hope that when this everything goes back to normal, that we don't lose that or that lose that mm-hmm. line of sight of the importance of those people that are close to you. Mm-hmm. I also think that this is an opportunity because hospitals and other agencies have had to sit back and take a closer look at their resources and their efficiencies. Yep. And prioritizing, um, and I, th- I'm hoping that this is a, a wake up call to really thinking forward of how they can improve in all of those different areas. Well, let me follow up on you with you on that a little bit because I've some listeners for sure who would fall into the kind of lefty persp- uh, polit- end of the political spectrum and who who might be saying that um, you know the the U.S. health in- the the U.S. Uh, healthcare industry and and medical care in the United States generally spends more than any other country on earth and probably doesn't necessarily insure everybody and maybe doesn't always get the best outcomes. What what uh, is is that along the lines of what you're saying will improve, or is there some other um, are there other is, is there a more granular way of looking at that? I mean, I think that's one example. I, I I would like to think that people would take this opportunity to yes, we do spend more than any other country, but I would I don't even know the figures, but I I would guess a large percentage of it doesn't need to be spent the way it's currently being spent, mm-hmm. um, and we've just gone about doing it because maybe it's covered by insurance or um, I'm tired of this nagging patient and I just want to give them what they're asking for, even though I know it's not the right thing um, Mm -hmm. because they're going to go to some other doctor who might do it. And, you know, and I, I, while I'm not a physician, I had patients that would say, you know, Shelly, I want a whole body PET scan so I can see if I have cancer because I know I'm high risk. I'm like, yeah, that's not the way, that's not what we do. (laughs) And, you know, you have to help educate them, but, you know, Patients are frightened. People are, are afraid of the unknown. Um, and I think it just goes back to that having that conversation with them about why things are done one way and not done the way that they might envision them or not done the way you see it on TV. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Let me ask you a question a little bit about um, kind of uh, your um, your professional growth learning 
Um, we spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about learning and, 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 and that means, and everything from, that means everything from formal education to kind of what, how, where we gather information and what our sources of information are and how we, we, we grow as a person, both kind of, um, in the traditional knowledge and skill sense, but also maybe in the sense of, of, I don't know, some kind of spiritual or personal growth where you become a better person and you, and you grow. So I want to ask you about that. Like, um, what, uh, what would you, you know, how would you, um, describe how you, how you've learned, where you've learned the most and how you learn and what you, maybe you can go into what, you know, what you want to learn or what you would like to focus on. Yeah, it's funny that you said um, what you would like to learn because I almost signed up for a three-week how to speak conversational French um, <laughs> online through Babbel, but I decided. Oh, not good. To. We can I, switch to French anytime you want. <laughs> yeah, I need to bone up on my French, and I was really excited about going to Montreal for my meeting because when I'm in that right. environment, I can understand it. I can't yeah. speak it very well, but yeah. um, so I my learning um, I learn best by kind of hear one, see one, do one philosophy. So if I can see um, somebody doing something or has a skill that I would like to have, I kind of observe that person for a while um, in the the different environments, not in a stalking kind of way. Um, And then when for example, if they're giving a presentation or I need to learn some content from a presentation, I observe them giving that several different times so I can get my own knowledge around it, my own language and words, so I can do it um, just as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do it. And then you stumble mm-hmm. and I fall and I learn from my mistakes and I pick it up pick up and, and go from there. That's That tends to be the best way for me to... Okay to learn. But from a ways that I try to stretch myself when my company moved me into a little bit more of a business um, position, and I'm I'm in a business role, um, even though I'm uh, very clinical, I work for a company and that's a business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I started reading the Harvard Business Review um, must Mm -hmm. reads um, on leadership, um, managing yourself, change management, strategy, and managing others, I think is another one. And I just really enjoyed all of those, even though they some of them are a little dated. But I could always take some nugget from them and apply it to a current situation that I'm in. And they're, they are highlighted and they have little post-it notes on them. They have mm-hmm. been used regularly. And I just bought the same box set, but it's talking about emotional intelligence, which I've read a lot about through a variety of other books. So my strategy when I wake up in the morning is I read a chapter of one of these business or self-help in business type magazine or books while I'm eating breakfast and before I start my day. Fantastic. So it's like my homework. And then at night when I go to bed, I read something for fun. Let me ask you about so let me ask you about two notable exceptions uh, that that I didn't that I didn't hear you mention when you talk about how you learn. One is formal education, <laughs> and two is uh, technology or maybe specific. I mean, what you you know Harvard. I assume you're reading the Harvard Business Review online, but uh, um, but but technology generally maybe apps or things that you've uh, things 
technological systems, software, websites that have changed how, you, um, how you've learned. Can you talk about those two a little bit, formal education and technology? So and their effect formal... on how you've learned? Yeah. So I view my formal education from, you know, kindergarten through my master's as just giving me the basic necessities. And this is going to sound terrible, particularly for the gazillion of dollars I paid. But um, it was really on the job and experiential learning that has given me the skill set that I have and the ability that I have now, honestly. Um, I, you know, I couldn't do what I'm doing now if I hadn't um, gone to school and had that formal education. But I, I can tell you, I am not necessarily using all of those skills. Now, is that because of the credential? Is that because you needed the credential? Is that what the piece you're saying that you couldn't have done it but for having gotten the degree? Or is that, or is it more? Is it is there something actually? qualitative or a skill? I think I had to go through all of those steps and all of the experiences and the training and the, the core tenets of genetic counseling and having the ability of, of looking at things from both sides, because that's what you have to do as a genetic counselor. You don't make decisions. Uh, you give all the options. Um, and I, and um, so to answer your question, it's I had to do it to get it and to get where I am. And now it's such a core part of me that I can't go back and say, oh, yeah, that class is what yeah, made me what do X. Mm -hmm. But, it's you know, distant. Ex yeah. And, you know, I had a psychology in college and that certainly has played into a greater uh, role in what I do now and what I did mm -hmm. when I was was seeing patients. So it's, mm -hmm. it's there, but um, I don't think it's. It's something that immediately pops into mind and, and of how I, how I learn in yeah, terms of technology, technology. Yeah. In terms of technology, I haven't like taken a course. I didn't even have a computer course in college. So it's all been, again, you know, here's a computer, use it. <laughs> um, and it's a tri trial and error, but uh -huh. I, I use it uh, more than most people. I mean, we have a, we converted our uh, company to Microsoft um, uh, 365, I believe yep. it's called. Mm -hmm. And we're doing a lot of Teams in, um, and setting up uh, chats through Teams and using files there mm -hmm. and Zoom through Teams. And I, I'm enjoying it. I, you know, it's a hunt and peck sometimes with what I'm trying to figure out. But once I figured it out, I'm usually teaching other people how to do it pretty quickly. So I really enjoy technology. I have every gadget you could probably need or want in my house. Um, and I enjoy using them to make my life easier. Yeah, let me push a little bit, push a little bit back on that a little. So, because I do think the way you've learned technology, the way you described it, of kind of you know figuring it out for yourself, is the way a lot of people have done it. And I and I also kind of wonder, and it makes me wonder sometimes whether people wouldn't have been better with other forms of education, maybe even content area study, uh, in the same method. I you know I I, I guess that would or on the the flip side of that would be if you could have gotten the technological education in the way that you got other, your, your formal education, would that have been better? I, I think no doubt it would have been better okay. because I would be learning right along with the technology as well at the same time that I'm learning the content, which is what my nephews and nieces are doing. 
this distant learning for them is, uh, you know, ramped up a little bit more, but a lot of what they were doing was on their computers for their high school work and certainly college. Well, let me ask you about that because I know your, your your nieces and nephews are very close to you, and I, I and I also know that I I know several parents. They're you know mostly kind of well off parents who are um, who are having this conversation with their with their children who are in high school about the relevance and power of university on a, a bachelor's degree. Um, and you know, I know one extreme example was a particular parent, a set of parents that we both know, who they they said to their kid when he was a senior in high school, "You can go to the University of Michigan, we'll pay for you, or we'll give you a hundred thousand dollars to start your own company. Um, make the choice." And uh, the the child chose University of Michigan, uh, and according to all the data I've read, that's what you're supposed to have decided. But I guess it. But it, I think that something's out that's on the table now that maybe wasn't on the table, uh, certainly wasn't on the table when we were going to college, and probably e- even ten years ago wouldn't have been a, a consideration. Is the idea of just kind of getting out there and doing it at an earlier age and learning and and you know kind of investing and learning on on the fly, ad hoc, uh, customized, bespoke learning, whatever you want to call it, uh, and investing in that. Do you, would you advise your nieces and nephews to do that in any case, or would you say, no, go the traditional, uh, bachelor's, master's, doctorate route? Uh, that's semi of a loaded question because my, my heart wants to say, get out there, do it because you, that's the best way to learn. But I think we're still in a society that if you don't have the right things on paper, you're not going to have the same opportunities as those that do. Hmm. Uh, um, and that's the credential, know, or is that the network? I think it's the credential. I think there's still this. When I look at a CV or a resume, and I see that somebody has, um, you know, college, or maybe they have a master's. I look at that person as having the experience of taking classes, being responsible for deadlines, reading more than just, you know, their GPA. They have some level of accountability. Whereas if I got a resume that didn't have those things, there'd still be some uncertainties about what that person, and I know that's all very, sounds very judgmental, but I think culturally we are still in a society that looks at those credentials that people have accomplished or those those traditional milestones that are expected of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's I don't think it's unusual at all. Hiring is hiring is all judgment and you are you are literally in the position of having to make a judgment about a person in a very short amount of time. And I think that, you know, the way you're describing it is consistent with how most people still hire. They yep. um I've if I've heard one thing I've I, one thing I've heard a lot is people hire based on the thing that a bachelor's, master's, doctorate shows, especially even especially just a bachelor's and uh, maybe a master's, is that this person is you know willing to follow through on something fairly large and th- in terms of a commitment and you know do what it takes to get it done, even though it probably wasn't all fun and wasn't all aligned exactly with what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it, and that that maybe signals a, you know, a certain amount of uh, ability to work, to be successful on the job. Is that, that's sounds a little bit like what you're saying. It is. And it, it's the same way that I would look at a resume and I can see that somebody was in a job for one year here, went to another job after eight months, the next job, one year, yeah. you know, so the mm-hmm. job hunting and I'm, you know, reading into that, there could be a variety of circumstances that are reasonable 
for those that job um, jumping. But uh, you look at that differently. Sure. So let's be a little negative for a moment. And let me just say, let, what if what if we, I mean, we're, what we're hearing now rumblings are, and since you're an industry, we can talk about this, you know, is, is that we're almost for sure in a recession. Uh, I've heard the word depression um, come up before. And we have a lot of, you have nieces and nephews. I have nieces and nephews. I know a lot of former students and friends who are graduating from college right now and are going to be on the job market. What would you say to somebody who's maybe a senior in college or a junior in college, or maybe in, you know, maybe finishing a master's? degree, what would you say are uh, things that they should be doing in, in terms of preparing themselves to be, uh, to be competitive in, 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 a kind of a, in, in that kind of a job market? I would recommend them to be open and receptive to any opportunities that present themselves because you don't know where it's going to lead. And even if it's something that you despise and don't see much of a future, you're still gaining some level of experience while making a little bit of money. Um, I I think sometimes it's all in your, the way you frame it in your own mind and your perspective. You know, this, I worked in a factory in high school and was, man, was that ever a motivator for what I (laughs) did not want to do. But every day I went in there and right. I am like, okay, this is good. I have a job. I'm getting money. I'm, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. I know I'm not going to do this when I get done. Um, right. So you have to like think about it in the, the big picture standpoint. So the diversification of your experiences, I think, lends you to l- be very marketable in a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I have one more question. I um, So as... Um, anybody, as any one of the tens of listeners that I have for this podcast know, you and I do another podcast together and I know you enjoy it and I enjoy it and we enjoy doing it together. So talk a little bit about your podcasting. What got you into it and what, and what have you learned? So I have learned, I think the number one lesson I have learned is to just, um, not talk immediately when I want to, you know, to be, to time my, uh, expressions because, you know, in a podcast, you're not always in the same room. So you can't, you don't have those cues. So it's helped. It tuned um, those nonverbal kind of things that you have to, okay, did he really pause or is he, you know, what that, that has, has been sharpened. Um, I've learned a lot with all of the guests that we've had on our podcast. And I love the, the bantering and the opportunity to hear the different perspectives. I've loved it so much that we are introducing podcasts into my company. (laughs) Believe it or not. Talk about that. So we are going to be interviewing um, key opinion leaders or um, individuals that we would like to share their experience, whether it's a, a case base with a patient or it's uh, telemedicine or how they implemented telemedicine into their program so that we can show other providers, other um, physicians out there, how it can be successfully implemented. So that's kind of the first couple of uh, ideas that we have right now. So I will be helping with that as well as the senior director of medical affairs. Well, so, so you didn't, you, you answered what you learned. What did you, what do you like about it? Uh, <laughs> I love the four of us who are very different from each other. Um, <laughs> just, just having these conversations and coming at it from different angles. 
Um, and what'd you say? What'd you ask? What did I just what do you what? Why do you like it? Why do I like it? It's different. It's new. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of medium, and you know, it's just. Uh, I just really enjoy it, despite the technical challenges we sometimes have. I yeah. I really like. Sometimes I have to study. Sometimes I have to read ahead of time what the topic mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with, or I have to rush out and see nine movies before the Oscars, <laughs> uh, which was not a chore. I loved it. Um, right. I right. think it's helping diversify me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it is, it is, there's no question that one of the things that, you know, early in the early days in the, in the, the early heady days of the internet, when Bill Clinton was president and Yahoo made a lot of money, um, they, I, the, the word, the, the way people used to talk about the internet was that it was going to have this massive democratizing force where people, more people would be able to have more input. It would be like, you know, there'd be this diversity of, you know, this market of place of ideas. And in so many ways, I feel like that's what podcasts are becoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just like fun. Yeah. There's so many niches and little, little, uh, back rooms. Uh, one of the podcasts that I, I learned about last week from a friend in, from a friend in the UK, he's actually in, in Shanghai, but he's from the UK is, uh, a, a podcast called my, my dad wrote a porno and it's basically <laughs> three 20 somethings reading their 75 year old fathers wrote a porno, a porn magazine, a porn, uh, story story right and they read it and then make fun of it on the podcast and it's oh utterly hilarious it is, is the father still alive is he here oh yeah too? oh yeah he's oh. like an ex-hippie you know baby boomer who like you know he was like you know i'm just gonna and it's 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 the most tepid porn ever. you know it's not uh-huh. a dirty nasty it's very funny but uh, but you're like that's out there you know that's on uh, yeah. that's one of the things on offer it's 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 incredible and and, and wild so i get it it's cool. Well, yeah, it's l- listen, I don't want I don't want to take too much of your time. Thanks for doing this, but uh, any any um, uh, t- parting thoughts? Anything else that I didn't ask that you, you, you that as we were talking came up? I guess the the biggest thing that I think has helped me in my career is I have pretty much said yes to almost every opportunity that has presented itself mm-hmm. because I felt like it has been a, made me a diverse person who can fit into any role or has a skill that I can offer in a way that I want to offer it, of course. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like sometimes we go down this vision of ourselves because I did it one time. I wanted to be a doctor and that's all I wanted to do and all I wanted to think about. But once I saw what other opportunities were out there and where my skills really lied, I really landed in the right place. And I, I just yeah, that's great. recommend people I to be open. It. I love it. That's great. That's wonderful. Well, thanks for doing this. You're fantastic. It was super fun. (laughs) And uh, we'll, um, you know, I mean, keep up your social distancing and we will, uh, we'll, we'll touch base again once, uh, you know, whatever, once this thing ends and we'll see how, how close our predictions were to being right. (laughs) Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks, John. All right.